The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, I'm glad you're here today. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. If you have your, if you have the Bible app on your phone, you'll also see all of the verses that we're going to talk about today um, in that Bible app on today's event, uh, what Westway believes about salvation. We've been doing this little series over the past few weeks because we feel like there are some important things that we, we want to communicate to people about what, about what we believe. Last week, we talked about what Westway believes about leadership, and I, and I really wanted to, one of the things I wanted to communicate to you last week was how much, how much the elders, especially the elders, especially the pastors, especially the team leaders here at Westway Christian Church, I, I really wanted to communicate how much they love you and care about you. And the primary way, um, they reveal that in lots of different ways, but I, I think the primary way that they do that is, is by ensuring that the, the teaching that happens here, not just on Sunday morning, but in small groups and, and Bible studies and all of those other ways, the teaching is consistent with Scripture. And the elders actually... This yesterday uh, kind of demonstrated to me how much they care about that. Yesterday morning, starting at about 8.30, uh, which is really early on a Saturday morning, to about 2.45, there was, this, there was this long conversation between our elders and our pastors. Um, a lot of them decided to not participate because it was Saturday, um, but some of them did participate, and there was this conversation about what we're going to talk about today, about, the, about what we believe about salvation. And as I'm kind of thinking through this yesterday, this demonstrates that your elders and your pastors care about you because, because there, are, there are things, as we've discussed, there are things that are essentials right? Essentials are the things that matter the most. You get them wrong and you don't have a foundation. And then there are other things, there are convictions where, where we can hold pretty tightly to them, but it's not an essential. And then there are preferences, how, how we think maybe, how many elders we should have maybe is a preference. How we serve communion on a Sunday morning is really a preference, but here's the thing, what a church believes about salvation, that's not a preference. What a church believes about salvation is not a conviction. What a church believes about salvation is an essential. So despite the fact that we've been talking about these, these, few, these several topics over the past few weeks, there was, just, there was still just a little bit of a little lack of clarity in the way we were going to talk about some things today. And what I love about our elders is they, they care enough about you um, to start, uh, I almost said the word pestering because they weren't pestering, to start texting me at 8.30 in the morning to have that conversation. Like that really matters and that, that's an indication of love. And I know that, that in, in my past, there would have been times where, where that really would have bothered me. You know, it's Saturday, it's the day before the sermon, but, but that, that wasn't my spirit, it wasn't my mindset yesterday, because your elders love you, 
And one of the most important things, probably the most important thing that we could ever communicate as a church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the most important thing. The other day I was in this, in this meeting with other pastors. There's this big music festival. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called the Horizon Music Festival. It's coming to Scotts Bluff Gearing on Labor Day weekend. And this group that's behind it has been having these, these sets of meetings with pastors over the past couple months, just kind of to keep us informed as to what's going on. And this past weekend, this past Friday, we found out who they, they introduced the speaker to us. We talked to him over online through, uh, through Zoom. And he kept talking about, he kept using the word gospel. And he said there are false gospels out there and there are muddy gospels out there. Well, one of the things I, I love about uh, the other pastors in Scotts Bluff, especially the ones that I'm in relationship with, is, is they actually care about what gospel is going to be preached to people. And one of them, Bruce Peterson um, from Grace Chapel, at the end of the meeting, they were doing a Q&A, and they said, okay, does anyone else have any questions? And Bruce stood up, and he got the mic, and he said, well, well, you said there are false gospels and there are muddy gospels, so that makes me kind of curious, what's your gospel? Like, that's a bold thing. What's your gospel? If we're going to level an accusation that there's a false gospel and a muddy gospel, we probably ought to know what this person believes as the gospel. And he said this. He said, by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. I think that's a pretty good gospel. That's a pretty accurate gospel. And here's how we talk about this at Westway. This will be um, on the screen. This is kind of the big picture of what we believe about salvation at Westway. The Bible teaches that salvation, the forgiveness of sins, is only by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ demonstrated through obedient faith. That's what we believe about salvation. Really big picture, big scheme. If you're looking in version, which I would encourage you to do, you'll see that there are, there are a whole slew of verses that, that we're not going to talk about today, but are all listed in version for you. And you should know that that's, um, that's really important because we want you to do the work. Because we've already done the work and we want you to do the work. We want you to come alongside us and do the work and read and study and seek to understand what those scriptures all are. If you're online, you've probably seen the initials or the phrase TLDR. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? TLDR. Better question, do you know what it means? Today's your lucky day. It means too long didn't read. T-L-D-R, too long, didn't read. So, so that's where someone really gets going on Facebook and posts this lightning rant, and then someone just says at the bottom as a comment, T-L-D-R, too long, didn't read. I think that we live in a T-L-D-R age. We live in a time where things are too long and we don't read them. When I was in high school, we had these things called Cliff's Notes. Anyone? Right? Cliff's Notes. Don't want to read Beowulf? Go pick up the Cliff's Notes version of it. Right? It'll tell you all of the things that you always wanted to know about um, Beowulf. I found this article. It was dated. It's from 2010 about Cliff's Notes. They were these, if you don't know, there were these little yellow books um, 
And there, it was kind of like an abbreviated version of the story, like a condensed story, maybe in 45 or 50 pages. This was an article from 2010. Two or three years ago, so this is 2007 or 2008 we're talking about, the wisdom was that students do research online but not study online. Said Emily Sautel, a founder of the McGraw-Hills online collaborative study site called Grade Guru. That has changed in the last 12 months. If you're a teacher here, how much are your students studying online? Probably significantly more than they were in 2007 or 2008. Parents, how much are your children studying online? That's probably all they do is study online. See, we've conditioned ourselves, and this is, this is where we're going to talk a little bit about too long didn't read here for a moment. What we've done is we have, we've conditioned ourselves to take in only small chunks of information. We've, we've trained our brains to take in small chunks of information. This is why when, when you are scrolling on your phone and you stop to look at content, you may not know this, but whatever, whatever you're using to access that content, it's called an algorithm. And what it's doing is, it's, it, it, is it is notating where you're stopping. It is notating what articles you are reading. Which is why a couple minutes later, and you're, you know, you're still scrolling a couple minutes later, and you see an article that looks kind of like that previous one, and then you stop to read it, here's what you're doing. You are training your device to tell you what to read. That's how that works. If you, if you want to play a little game, especially with Instagram, what I suggest you do is you just go into the little search field. And I would, I would kind of scroll through something that actually that you want to see, like something that, that will just pop up, something that you want to see, and just click on it, and then just click on lots of like similar things, and then over the next few days when you click on that search bar, you'll see that same content start to show up. Things that you never really looked at before, I played with it this week, it was fantastic. But here's, here's what's happening is we are, we are conditioning, we're conditioning our brains to only like content that, that we agree with, to only see content that we agree with. And most of us know, because of the way our news cycle functions and our news cycle operates, it's really just creating anger, right? Like we scroll all day and then we wonder why we're anxious. Well, show me the last five things you stopped on on your phone and then we can talk about your anxiety. Okay, your phone is designed to do that, and, and it is, it's conditioning your brain to only like information in short chunks, in little bits of information. This, uh, in the same article, Carrie Nelson, who's a professor, who was a professor, a professor of English at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, had this to say about Cliff Notes. The problem is when you use a study guide in place of the original book, then, the, then they have knowledge that is not just superficial, but wrong. That is a golden quote. The problem is, when you use a study guide in place of the original book, then they have knowledge that's not just superficial and wrong. 
See, part of the issue with us living in this, in this age, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it the TikTok age. I've been working on this for about six weeks. Call it the TikTok age. The problem with living in the TikTok age um, is we don't have the full story. We see things just reduced to the bare minimum of not even what is something that's real. And when we don't interact with Scripture as a whole, we begin to, we begin to soundbite Scripture texts. Right? Show, me, show me the main thing that I need to know. Just, I don't want to read all that. Just tell me what I'm... Just, can you condense this seven paragraphs down into three sentences for me? Too long, didn't read. See, that's what your brain is doing. And when you start to think that way, because your brain has been conditioned and we have conditioned our brains. So one of the things that we have to do, especially as Christians, is not, not give in to this TikTok age that we find ourselves in. And I think what we want to do, and I didn't come up with a nice little abbreviation for this, the culture that we're trying to create here at Westway is this. It's a long read and it's worth every second. That's, that's the culture that we are trying to create. It's a long read and it's worth every second. It is worth your time, energy, and investment in reading scripture. All of it. It's worth it. Because only when you do that do you, do you begin to see connections between texts that seemingly aren't connected. See, we want to push back against this culture. And that's why it's really hard to take, I think I, te- I think I texted this yesterday in this text thread that we had going between our pastors and elders. It's really hard to take 2,000 years of, of Christian history, much less thousands and thousands of years of Bible history, and reduce these things down into this nice little, neat little two-sentence statement about what we believe about something. It's impossible. Which is why the day before we're going to have a message on this, like we're still talking about what do we want to communicate? What do we feel like God is telling us to communicate to our body about what the Bible says about salvation? So again, here's, here's that big picture. The Bible teaches that salvation, the forgiveness of sins, is only by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ demonstrated through obedient faith. So let's talk about this for a second. The next one is going to say, because of our sin, this is again in you version, because of our sin, we're separated from God. This is the gospel. Because of our sin, we're separated from God. We have no way to get back into a right relationship with God on our own. Biblically, we learn that salvation only comes from Christ. It's because he was crucified and killed that we can be reconciled or rejoined with God. I'm going to talk more about that one in a second. And it is because he rose again that we can be justified or walk newly in him. So we're starting to narrow what the Bible teaches about salvation, and it teaches some pretty key things. Because of our sin, we're separated from God. This is Romans 3, 23 through 26. If you have one of the Bibles, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 702, but again, this is all in you version. I'm just going to read Romans 3, 23 to 26. For everyone has sinned, We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. 
He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of sins. Which begs the question, how? For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do at the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So we have, when we read the big picture of scripture, what we learn is that we are sinful people. But we don't really need to read scripture to know that. We just can look at our own lives, right? And maybe that's a little uncomfortable for us. So how about this? We can look at the lives of other people and see that people are sinful. And here's the reality. Those same people are looking at you and seeing that you're sinful. See, we have, we have a crisis at hand. And it's not, about, it's, not, it's not about the things that we think are the crises in our culture. The crisis that we are really dealing with is the fact that we are sinful people. That we choose sin all the time. Absent the work of God in our lives. All of sin, we all fall short. And then if we flip a few pages and look at Romans 6.23... This is on 704 in that Bible in front of you. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, we have a sin problem. We're separated from God. And the only fix is Jesus. That's what the Bible is telling us. It's the only fix. It's the only thing that's going to make it right. Not all of the things that we try and do to make it right. All of the things that we try and do to deal with the fruit of sin. What the Bible does is it deals with the root of our sin. And the root of our sin is our sin. It's our selfishness. It's our pride. It's our arrogance. And the word I said I wanted to come back to in that statement, it says, it's because he was crucified and killed that we can be reconciled. And rejoined with God. Now that, that's kind of an interesting concept that we can be reconciled with God because we have to ask a question. Well, reconcile means to come back to, to rejoin. Which gives an indication that at some point, man and God were, were united. And I don't mean that man was God. What I mean is at some point in history, there was, this, there was this relationship that existed between mankind and God. And this is why if you're, if you're reading the whole Bible, when we flip back to the very beginning, we're going to talk about Genesis starting in the fall. We flip back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. What we see is this, is this beautiful painting this beautiful image of what it looks like for God and man to be in unity together, in relationship together, where God has created man to function in a certain way. And as I've said before, I, I gave it like 24 hours before they blew it. 
I think we kind of read sometimes Genesis 3, and in our, in our imagination, we'd like to think, oh, thousands of years went past. No, nope, I think it was the next day. Probably the first hour of the next day, as soon as they woke up. Right? And I can say that because I know, like, I know me. Well, there's this image that Genesis 1 and 2 paints of unity. And something happens, and that's Genesis 3, where they're, they're not supposed to eat of this certain tree, and they do. They just do. They know what God's word, God had told them, and they just violated it. And I think for us, we, we ask questions like, well, why did God put the tree in there if he didn't want them to do it? Well, let me ask you a question. How many times have you sinned this week knowing what you shouldn't do? We don't need to, to, to blame Adam and Eve. We just have to look at our own sinfulness. And that, and that sin, the problem of that just cascaded. And if we read through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you'll see how, how that sin just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So they get, the people get the law, they have the prophets, and ultimately they have Jesus, who is our reconciler. Because what Jesus does is he comes to us and he says, hey, let me show you how to get back in relationship with God. Because there was a time where you were. It was a really long time ago. And my job as Jesus is to reconcile you to God, to bring you back into right relationship to restore that relationship, to rejoin that relationship. And this is one of the things that Jesus does. Is he brings us back into relationship with him. And because he rose again, we can be justified. We can, we can walk newly with him. We can live a new life with him. So we're going to keep going here. While God does the work, we respond in the New Testament, we see people responding in four ways. Belief, repentance, baptism, and confession. So what do these words mean? These are, these are church words. We don't use, we often don't use these words outside of a church environment. So what is belief? Belief, and again, this is on the screen, it's in version. Belief is acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah and acting upon that knowledge through repentance, baptism, and confession. So if I'm going to say that I believe in God, this is not, this is not just intellectual assent, because you'll talk to lots of people who say they believe in God. The way that we talk about that here is uh, growing my wisdom and knowledge in a way that leads to transformation. Some of you could started to auto-complete that sentence, which makes my heart sing, because that means you're starting to get what we're talking about, right? Belief, or wisdom, growing in wisdom and knowledge in a way that leads to transformation. See, there's a way to have wisdom and knowledge and not be transformed by it. And when someone just says, I believe in God, and their life hasn't changed because of that belief, it's just intellectual assent. They're demonstrating a growth, growth in wisdom and knowledge, but they haven't been transformed. And belief is not that. John 3, 6, 15 and 16, these is, that's on page 662 in that Bible in front of you.
is where John 3.16 always gets all the credit. Let's go back to 15. Kind of in the middle of the sentence, at least in the NLT. So that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. See, when we believe in him in a way that our our wisdom and knowledge leads to transformation and we act differently, we have eternal life. That's, That's what Jesus is talking about here. Not just, I believe in God, so I'm going to heaven. No, is it changing you? And maybe you should ask, where do you see that, John? John 3.36. It's what happens when we read the Bible. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. What I love about this verse so much is it ties obedience with belief. They're not separate. They're not two different things. To be very clear, I'm not earning my salvation because of my belief. I'm not earning my salvation because of my actions. But I'm certainly living a certain way because of that belief. That belief has impacted me. It has affected me. I've been chewing over this over the past few weeks. We and Cody, what really got me started on it was a couple weeks ago when Cody gave his gave his welcome and his offering message. He talked about the ways that we we invest in things that we believe in. Does that make sense? Whatever your let's let's say you have a favorite football team, whoever it is there's a pretty good chance that you have something at home that's an indicator of your favorite football team. Maybe you have lots of things in your house that are an indicator of your favorite football team. If you came to my house, you'd see it because it's right on the welcome mat at at our front step. It says Ohio State. Walk into my house and you will see all sorts of Ohio State things in our living room. Because that's, that's, like, I'm invested in that. I believe in that, so I'm going to invest myself in that. And that's probably true of you. Whatever your thing is, we would know, because we would show up at your house, we could spend maybe 10 minutes with you, and we would know the thing that you're invested in. And this kind of belief, when we act upon it, is an indication of what we're invested in. It's an indication that we've been transformed by this thing. It's not just that I believe it. Like, it's really risky to be an Ohio State fan here. I get it. Uh, I'm not going to say what I almost said. Hold on, i got to recalibrate my brain. Um, It gets risky to be an Ohio State fan here. But I'm invested. I don't, like, I don't care. Right? Because it's something that I'm invested in. Belief leads to action. We're going to live differently because of it. Let's talk about repentance. Repentance is acknowledging our sin before God and others when we sin against them and living differently and not continuing in sin. So if we go to 2 Corinthians 7.10, that's on page 724 in that Bible in front of you. 
Repentance is acknowledging our sin before God and others when we sin against them and living differently and not continuing in that sin. So what that means is is we're going to go to God and we're going to acknowledge the reality that we are sinners. And here's what you need to know. He already knows. When we go to God and we conf- when we confess our sin, admit our sin in front of God, we're not telling him something that he doesn't already know. So then in my mind, and maybe this is, this is maybe the way I think, in my mind then, well, then what's the big deal about telling God that I'm a sinner? Like, what, like why would I not do that? What gets in the way, and we're going to talk about this at the end, There are some things that get in the way of our repentance. And the primary thing that gets in the way of our repentance is our prideful arrogance. Like God already knows. He just knows. What would it be like for you to be so comfortable in the salvation that Jesus has given you to just go to him and talk to him about your sin? So we want to confess that sin. We want to admit that sin. We want to do that to other people. When we sin against someone else, we want to confess it. We want to admit it. And then we want to live differently and not continue to sin. I love 2 Corinthians 7.10. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. See, what's happening here is there's this contrast between godly sorrow and spiritual sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, another way to talk about with that would be, I'm sorry I got caught. That's worldly sorrow. I'm sorry I got caught. That's what happens when you get pulled over by the police officer. Or better yet, it's what happens before you get pulled over and you pass said police officer and you immediately look at your speedometer And you know you're not doing the speed limit. And what do you do? This thing? Like as though he's as like slinking down, he's not going to see your car. Right? That's worldly sorrow. That's worldly sorrow. It's 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 we got caught. And I gotta go pay this fine. And I got caught. But godly sorrow is not that. Godly sorrow leads us away from sin and results in salvation. See, that's, that's true repentance. I want to live a different life. I, like, I just don't want to speed anymore. Or when I want to speed, I don't. And not just because I'm going to get a ticket, but because it's wrong. Because God has placed these authorities in my life, according to Romans 13, that are for my good. And Paul continues, he said, and, and he doesn't wear the, bear the sword in vain. So, you know, when you get pulled over for speeding, you deserve it. Of course you should get a ticket. What did you think was going to happen? Right? Worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. It leads to our salvation because it's an admission of our sin and God can deal with it. And then lastly, and it's important to note, I'll say this at the at the at the end of this statement. This is the non-final draft version. Baptism is our public act of obedience that indicates the hope and trust we have in the work of Christ who's cleansed us from our sins 
as well as our hope and trust in the continuing work of the Holy Spirit that we will live in faithfulness to God. That's all one sentence. That's 2,000 years of history, philosophy, Christian ethics, Christian understandings summarized in one sentence that is probably not complete. But it's pretty close. It's pretty close to what we believe. It's our public act of obedience. So it's a public act. It's an act of obedience. It's not an act of salvation because remember, salvation comes through Christ alone. It indicates the hope and trust that we have in the work of Christ who's cleanses from our sins. Jesus, you have saved me from my sin. I'm going to do this thing to demonstrate it. As well as our hope and trust in the continuing work of the Holy Spirit that will live in faithfulness to God. I'm going to do this thing because I'm trusting that what you are going to do is you are going to manifest yourself so, so clearly to me and through me that everyone is going to know that I'm a follower of Christ. That's baptism. I want to read Romans 6, 1 to 14 to you this morning. That's on 703 in that book in front of you. Romans 6, 1 to 14. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? See, that's dying to our old selves. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, we now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. See, this is all about that new life. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way that you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what's right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. So just be very, very clear. Something happens at baptism that makes you new. Something changes at baptism that makes you new. And it's not because you did something, but it's because Christ did. Because you're trusting in what the Holy Spirit is going to do. And this is so critical for us. And lastly, confession. And, and we had a lot of discussion about this. Confession is the way a Christian lives the rest of their life. The proclamation of Jesus as Lord through their thoughts, words, and deeds. See, sometimes we think confession is the thing I do. Like I need to confess my sins. Well, that's repentance. When someone gets baptized, they make a confession about what they believe about Jesus. 
But the kind of confession that, that the Bible is talking about when it uses that word is the way that I live my life after I have been saved, after I've entered into that relationship with God. I'm going to confess, I'm going to share, I'm going to tell. That's the last part of what we just read in Romans 6. I'm going to live differently because of this. I thought of Romans 10, 8, actually 9 through 11, but I'm going to read the very last part of 8. This is on 706 in that Bible in front of you. Romans 10, I'm going to read the last part of 8. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. See, this is an image of confession. This is how we live our lives as we confess. We live in new ways. We don't speed anymore. And not because we don't want another ticket, but because we're new people. We don't give in to the same sins over and over and over and over and over and over again because we feel bad or we get caught, but because we're new people. Because we live differently. So this is how God loves us and demonstrates his faithfulness to us. By recognizing the separation that we have and making a way for us to be reconciled to him. This is how God shows you he loves you. And whatever, whatever thing, maybe that, maybe that you've added into your mind, well, well, if God would just fill in that blank... He's already demonstrated his love for you once, fully, completely. And for those of you who are living in that just world, that if only world, I wish you'd see that you have everything you need in Christ today. It's available to you right now. Years ago, Ann and I heard messages like this when we were when we were new to a church in Ohio and it took a lot of messages like this to break through like our our own personal pride and arrogance to hear what God had for us it wasn't just it wasn't a reality that we didn't know what the bible said because we did and I've talked about this before, but we were, we were living in this space where we had wisdom and knowledge, but we didn't have any transformation. We didn't have any, we didn't have any life change because we'd heard these things over and over and over again. And we willingly chose to ignore those things because we were just, we were selfish. And she was much, much further, I was, I was way further along that line than she was. She made her decision, her choice earlier than what I did, and she just waited for me. That was our reality. Like we would hear this kind of thing and we like didn't want to do it, didn't want to do it, didn't want to do it. And I, this past week I was reminded by a pastor friend of mine of the story of Naaman in the Old Testament. And this is, this is 2 Kings. I told you to open your Bible there. You're like, is he ever going to talk about that? Yes. 2 Kings 5. 
The king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him, God had, the Lord had given Aram great victories. But through Naaman, but though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. At this time, Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day, the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman told the king what the younger girl of Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I'll send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying his gifts. He lists the gifts there. The letter to the king said, with this letter, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, am I God that I can give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to heal someone for leprosy? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him, why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me and he will learn that there's a true prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a message out to him with this message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. Listen to Naaman. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana, and the Farspar better than any of the rivers in Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned away and went, in a rage, went away in a rage. But his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says, simply go and wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River, dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him, and his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child, and he was healed. So I read and reflected on this story this week. I wonder, I wonder what your sticking point in responding to the gospel is. I wonder what, what your thing is that you are not responding to the life that Jesus offers you. Maybe, maybe you don't believe. And here's the thing. We're actually not asking you to increase your belief as though you have something to do with your salvation. What we're asking you to do is believe in the object of your belief, and his name is Jesus Christ. We want you to trust in his work. We want you to believe in him. So you're not believing because you're good. You're believing because he's good. What I would encourage you to do, if belief is your hang-up today, if belief is your hang-up, what I would encourage you to do is, is, is continue to read the Bible. And not just one verse not just one verse, but the whole of Scripture, to spend time immersing yourself into Scripture to get to know God's heart for you. Maybe you don't want to repent of your sin. And here's, 
here's this reality. You have to decide at some point that you are, you've had enough of the chaos, death, and destruction that marks your life. Like you have to decide that. You have to hit the bottom, whatever your bottom is. And, and my hope and my prayer for you is that that would be, is that that would be a gentle landing. But here's my experience. For most people, it's not. For most people, when they come to the end of themselves, it is a catastrophic failure. It's so hurtful and damaging to themselves and to people around them. And my hope for you, if repentance is your hang-up, my hope for you is that you will see what's happening in your life. My hope is if you're walking around with guilt and shame because of all of your sin, that you would see that Jesus has a life for you and he just wants to take that from you. And there's actually a way to live life differently. There's a way to be free from that guilt and shame. And it's not in temporary fixes. It's in the ultimate fix of Jesus for you. Maybe your hang-up is baptism. I want to tell you something. The problem is not the water as much as you want to make it out to be. As I'm, as I'm reading through this story of Naaman, what's so interesting is that it's about his obedience. Like, I could just be baptized anyway. I could just go in this river. I could just go in that river. I could just go and do this thing. That's not what God said. And I think for those of us who are resistant to baptism by immersion, we're really naming. What we want to do is we want to pursue salvation the way we want to pursue it. What we want to do is we want to say, well, my way is good enough. And the problem is, is God has clearly revealed to us the way to be saved. And what I would ask you to do this week, if, that, if baptism is your thing, and I know for some of you it is, I would love for you to just camp out in 2 Kings 5 this week. And read the story of Naaman and, and, and fill in where he says, I could just be baptized here. Whatever your, whatever reason you are telling yourself that you don't have to do this, why don't you go ahead and put that in place of what Naaman says and ask God to reveal truth to you. And then here's confession. Maybe it's Confession. And one of the things that I would say after 26 years now of, of being a Christian is that so much living a life of faithfulness has only been as hard as I make it. Does that make sense? Living a life of faithfulness is only as easy or as hard as I make it. And if I'm constantly pushing back and resisting and refusing to go down the path that God wants me to go down, that's not God's problem, that's mine. So one of the things that I've been praying about 
just for me, is that I would, I would live a life of faithful confession. That I would see that God actually wants me to live in a certain way for him. And it's for my, it's for my good. And what I would encourage you to do, if confession is your issue, get in a relationship with some other Christians. I mean real relationship. I mean one where people are not going to tolerate you being you. One where someone is going to see your lack of faithfulness as demonstrated by a lack of effort, and they're going to call you to that because they love you and they care about you. Last week, as we were talking about this in elders meeting, Dave Parrish, he said this quote before. He said, when we become Christians, we don't switch worship for witchcraft. Let me say that again. When we, don't be, when we become Christians, we don't switch worship for witchcraft. See, sometimes we think that God is under our control. Sometimes we enter into this relationship with God and we think, well, I'll do this if you do that. That's witchcraft. Worship is being under God's control. Worship is doing the things that he calls us to do. Acknowledging him as Lord. Confessing him as Lord. Being baptized. Repenting and believing. And my hope for you today is that you'll see how much God loves you in the midst of this salvation message. If you've been resisting, here's what I want to invite you to do today. We have, we have filled our baptistry this morning. There are 10 towels back there. We can double up. If, if you have been resisting the call of God on your life, especially as it pertains to baptism, but certainly in every single one of these ways, like we want you to just do something about that today. And I know you didn't bring baptism-appropriate clothing, but chances are you've all been wet before. You've all ridden wet in a car, and it'll be okay because your obedience is more important than your comfort. I'm going to pray. Deb is going to come up for communion. I'm going to stand right over at that door. What I would encourage you to do is to not resist what God is calling you to do this morning. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would break down barriers and you would break down walls that separate us from you. That we would be aware of the life that you are calling us to live and that we would simply respond in obedience. We would do what you want us to do. We would cast aside ourselves. We would cast aside our, our fear, our arrogance, our resistance and simply submit to the life that you have for us. And it's in your son's name I pray, amen.